Hey friends, welcome to Teaching Thursdays, an edition of the Better Bible Reading Podcast, episode number 45. Today we are covering part two of our discussion on the millennium. We are rounding the corner in our discussion about covenant theology and dispensationalism, the two most popular Bible interpretation methods. And we are dedicating time to looking at Revelation chapter 20, which is where the concept of the millennium is explicitly mentioned. So what we're going to do in this episode is work our way through that text and look to see how covenant theology has a more biblical approach to interpreting that passage than dispensationalism does. But of course, we want to cover how both of those particular interpretation methods seek to understand this passage because that's going to be the key regardless of what side of the fence you land on that's going to be the key for you to have an informed and charitable conversation with other brothers and sisters in christ that may see this passage quite differently than you do this particular episode is brought to you by my sponsors over at patreon.com And if you would like to support the work I'm doing on Better Bible Reading Podcast, I would be pleased and very thankful if you would go to patreon.com, that's p-a-t-r-e-o-n.com forward slash better Bible reading to see how you can pledge your support to help see more episodes like this, as well as other topics that may interest you. But without further ado, here is the Millennium Part 2. It's been said by many that the millennium is that 1,000-year period of time where Christians argue about how Jesus is going to come back. And that's uh, sometimes pretty accurate. Uh, As we talked about last week, um, there's quite a few different varieties of how the millennium is understood. And we spent a good deal of time last week surveying those, uh, talking about some key uh, components of this chapter in Revelation chapter 20. So we won't, won't have the time to rehearse everything we went through last week. Uh, this morning I'd like to really focus on the ways that I see dispensationalism falling short of a good view of the millennium and how the uh, view, the reform view, the view in covenant theology, I think, answers the key questions of the text with uh, greater continuity with what the rest of the Bible has to say with the particular topics covered in Revelation chapter 20. So let me uh, just hit a couple of brief things uh, that we did cover last week. Uh, so just a survey of Revelation 20 is that you have this mention of a thousand years. It's mentioned a few times throughout Revelation chapter 20, uh, but it's interesting to note that this is the only chapter in the Bible that explicitly talks about this 1,000-year period of time. And during this 1,000 years, whatever it is, however we are to understand it, what is said about it is that during this 1,000 years, uh, Satan is going to be thrown into a pit, shut and sealed so that he can't deceive the nations until after this 1,000-year period. And those who have, according to this, been beheaded for the testimony of Jesus and the Word of God, who haven't received the mark of the beast, will come to life and reign with Christ for a 1,000 years. And 
John identifies that as, this verse 5, as the first resurrection. What it says about those who are partakers of the first resurrection, it says that the second death has no power over them. That's from verse 6. So you have this relationship between the first resurrection and the second death. Um, And also in the 1,000 years that are taking place, it says that this is particular to those who come to life and reign with Christ. It says the rest of the dead, this is verse 5, the rest of the dead did not come to life until the 1,000 years were ended. And then following that, verses 7 through 10 speak of the final defeat of Satan being thrown into the lake of fire uh, to be tormented forever and ever. So one interesting thing to note, Satan does not rule and reign over hell. Satan is tormented in hell with all those who are um, associated with him. So that whole idea that you see in cartoons where hell is the realm of Satan and he's kind of got the authority there is very much not in uh, concordance with what we read here because he will also be tormented and suffer uh, forever and ever in this place, the lake of fire. So a few things that we covered last week. Um, What I tried to make the argument of was that the key to this concept of the first resurrection is what we see Jesus mention, what we see Paul mention, and what we see John mention elsewhere in the New Testament. That this idea of the first resurrection should not be understood as this bodily resurrection which we're all looking forward to at the end of time, but rather the first resurrection is to say that we as Christians have been brought from death to life. So the verses that we looked at were John chapter 5, where Jesus mentions two resurrections. First, the resurrection unto eternal life, which all of us who are Christians have shared in, are participating in right now. The way that Paul says it in Ephesians chapter 2 is that you were dead in your trespasses and sins, but God has made you alive, raised you in the heavenly places, and seated you with Jesus Christ. Which, of course, when we compare that to what John says here in Revelation 20, it's a very close parallel um, regarding the fact that we have been raised, but we're also looking to that final resurrection of the body. But this idea of regeneration, this idea of coming alive again when we were previously dead in our sins, the Bible very clearly speaks of that as a resurrection. And so the the difficulty with Revelation 20 in dispensationalism is that this mention of a resurrection, they think, must mean there's different segments of bodily resurrections. I mentioned that J. Dwight Pentecost says that there's five separate phases of bodily resurrections all the way back from Jesus' bodily resurrection to the rapture and then et cetera, et cetera. But we also looked at the fact that Christian theology through the centuries has always, in the different councils and creeds, has always seen the resurrection as one universal event at the end of history upon Jesus' return. The just and the unjust being raised to life, either to everlasting life in heaven or everlasting torment in the lake of fire or in hell. So we mentioned that dispensational theology really 
goes a different direction than historical Christianity in terms of how they understand this concept of resurrection. So, like I said, that was kind of all last week, and that was a lot. That obviously, that's a lot to kind of summarize in two minutes, but um, I would definitely recommend going back and listening to that if you want, because what I want to do now is kind of hit some, some key points where I think dispensational theology falls short in terms of understanding this concept. The first one is this, and that is they see that this whole concept of the millennium is for the sake of bringing to pass promises that have yet to be fulfilled. If you'll turn your Bible to Joshua chapter 21, all the way back in the Old Testament, Joshua chapter 21, I want to kind of survey this idea for just a minute. So hopefully you've come to understand this by now. But dispensational theology is all about a key focus, a central focus on ethnic Israel. We've said that time and time again. But it's important to remind all of you of that because in dispensational theology, this millennium here in Revelation 20 is for the purpose of restoring Israel to her land, giving her the realization of God's covenant promises, and to bring the whole world to a knowledge of God. So... This 1,000-year reign of Jesus, when Jesus, according to them, physically returns and reigns on a physical throne in geographical Jerusalem in time and space for 1,000 literal years, the whole reason that's happening is to bring all of these promises to pass. What promises are we talking about? Well, according to them, we're talking about all the promises in the Old Covenant. So when you look at Joshua chapter 21, Joshua has been involved with a very important task, and that is after the death of Moses, Joshua was to lead Israel into the promised land. He was to conquer the nations who were dwelling in the land, because remember this wasn't just free, free reign land, this was land that was owned, if you will, by all of these nations, so they had to fight these nations, take control of the land, and then disperse it to all the different tribes. So, in towards the end of Joshua, chapter 21, it says this in verses 43 through 45. This is just after the land has been divvied out to the different, the 12 tribes of Israel. Here's what it says. Thus the Lord gave to Israel all the land that he swore to give to their fathers. And they took possession of it, and they settled there. And the Lord gave them rest on every side, just as he had sworn to their fathers. Not one of all their enemies had withstood them, for the Lord had given all their enemies into their hands. Not one word of all the good promises that the Lord had made to the house of Israel had failed. All came to pass. It's extremely important for us to understand because dispensational theology says the exact opposite. Dispensational theology says there's still promises to be fulfilled, there's still land to be given, there's still all this stuff that has to take place, and the only proper way for that to happen is in Jesus' millennial reign on earth. There's a few things that we can do to deal with this. 
But the first thing to notice is that there's very clear language used here in Joshua to say that there's no land left to be given. There's no promise yet to be fulfilled. There's no enemy that's withstood them. There's no rest that hasn't been attained. I mean, that's pretty exhaustive, right? That's pretty clear cut and dry of the fact that the very end of that uh, chapter says all came to pass. All has been fulfilled. Well, if you notice here, dispensational theology says that there's promises yet to be fulfilled. Now, it's not as simple as just explaining it away. So what I'd like to do is have us look at some other elements of tracing out this idea. And another place you can turn for that is Hebrews chapter 4. And I'll go ahead and warn you this morning, since I spent so much time in Revelation 20 last week, I'm trying to make up for that by going all over the place today. So you'll have to bear with me. Uh, Hebrews chapter 4. So a few things that Israel was doing in order to get to this land of promise. And one of the most important ways that it's explained is that they were going to this promised land for the sake of finding rest. That's one of the things that they didn't have in Egypt during their time of slavery. That's one of the things they didn't have in the wilderness. That's one of the things they didn't have while they were fighting and battling the the land of Canaan, the different kings and so forth. So when they get to this promised land, it's this land of rest. Well, here's what uh, the author of Hebrews says regarding this idea. You can look in verses 8 through 11. As a matter of fact, will somebody read uh, 8 through 11 in Hebrews chapter 4, please? Okay. So he says this rest that Joshua brought to them was not the ultimate rest. It was rest. It was this promise being fulfilled by God, but it wasn't exhaustive. So there's this greater rest that is yet to come, this greater rest that everybody is still looking forward to. And the way that he identifies that is that there is a rest, a Sabbath rest for the people of God, for whoever has entered God's rest has rested from his works as God did from his. So a summary of that is to say that true and final rest is found in God, in God himself, and us identifying with God. Now, how does that happen? Well, what did Jesus say? Does anybody remember what Jesus said in the Gospel of Matthew? Come to me. Finish it up. Sound like a Pentecostal Sunday school class here. This is a lot of good. No, I'm kidding. But uh, yeah, he says in Matthew 11, Come to me, all you who are weary and labor, heavy laden, I will give you rest, right? This promise of rest found in him. And Jesus was very, I'm sure, aware of the fact that he was speaking primarily to Jews at this time. And their idea of rest, at least from their initial idea of rest, was all found in the land, in the dwelling place, in this promised place that God has given to them. And yet Jesus says that there's a greater rest, namely in him, coming to him. And that's exactly what the author of Hebrews says, that this rest is God's rest, entering into God's rest. Another place we can look at, um, I'll tell you what, stay in Hebrews, and I'll read this really quick in 2 Corinthians chapter 1. It says, excuse me, for all the promises of God find their yes in him, namely Jesus. 
That is why it is through him that we utter our amen to God for his glory. So that's just yet another way of explaining the fact not only is the Sabbath rest found in Jesus truly and finally, but all the promises, all the promises are found in being in Christ. One other place, if you're in Hebrews still, you can turn to the end of Hebrews, Hebrews chapter 13. And this is so key to our discussion because there is disagreement as to who the audience is in the book of Hebrews. Now it's kind of clear in the title, the letter to the Hebrews. But there's, there is disagreement as to whether this audience was a mixture of Jew and Gentile or if it was primarily Jewish Christians. Let's just assume that it is Jewish Christians. Um, that's kind of the, I guess, majority report um, and as to who this audience is. But it's interesting to me that in chapter 13... The author is giving the final uh, word of encouragement and exhortation. And he refers back to Joshua. He says in verse 5 of chapter 13, Keep your life free from the love of money and be content with what you have. For he has said, I will never leave you nor forsake you. Now that's exactly the charge that God gives to the Israelites as they're getting ready to enter into that land. It's interesting that the author of Hebrews um, takes that verse that God gives to them, I will never leave you or forsake you, and applies it here. So how does he apply it? If this is truly a Jewish audience and the dispensational view is right, what would the author to the Hebrews say to them that they're dispersed and in the midst of persecution and trial and suffering. If the dispensational view is right, he should say to them, stand fast, be encouraged, for there's a time coming when your land will be given back to you, where you will again dwell in Jerusalem and all the nations will be subject to you and you will thrive once again in time and space. Now, that's not what the author says. In fact, the author says exactly the opposite. Verse 14, here's what he says to them. For here we have no lasting city, but we seek the city that is to come. And that's very different from the dispensational view, which says that here they do have a lasting city. They do have this Jerusalem here in time and space that's going to be given back to them again. The author instead says, what we're looking forward to, what we're seeking, the city that we're seeking, is not found here. It's found from beyond here. In fact, the way that Revelation mentions this place is that it's this new Jerusalem. Key word being new. Not the Jerusalem here as we know it. Not the type and shadow here as we know it, but the ultimate reality of that type and shadow, which is the Jerusalem coming down out of heaven, which is how Revelation describes it. So 
In regard to that, I think that's the first place that dispensationalism falls in their idea of the millennium because what they're saying is that all of these things are going to be given back to ethnic Israel in the here and now, whereas our brief survey of Scripture says that the promises are are never solely dependent on the here and now. They're never meant to be exhausted in the here and now. The here and now, according to Joshua, has already been fulfilled. The promises have already come to pass. Nothing has been lacking in the promises. But the true reality is found in that rest in God and that place yet to come that he will bring to us, not in a millennium, but in the new heavens and new earth. Another idea that we can trace out a little bit uh, let's see, I should have grabbed a... Could somebody grab me a napkin, please? I appreciate it. Um, another place you can turn to, um, which we'll get to in just a minute, but go ahead and turn in your Bibles to the second chapter of Second Peter. Thank you. The second chapter of Second Peter. The fourth verse of the second chapter of Second Peter. If the first mistake of dispensational theology is seeing that promises are yet to be fulfilled in the here and now for ethnic Israel, then the second problem of dispensational theology is, in case you're wondering if I wrote that backwards, I didn't, interpreting the clear by the unclear. Now, it's typical that um, we have a standard of interpretation, and I'll actually read it to you in uh, the Westminster Confession of Faith, but it doesn't start in the Westminster Confession of Faith. It's a pretty common uh, concept. You know, it's, it's a common practice. When we come to an apocalyptic book like Revelation, chapter 20, and this idea of a 1,000 years, this millennium is presented to us, we should first say, does this occur elsewhere? Does this mention of 1,000 years occur elsewhere? And since it doesn't explicitly occur elsewhere, normally the proper way to approach the scriptures where something is unclear is that we take what is clear. In other words, in Revelation 20, it doesn't just talk about 1,000 years. It talks about a whole lot of other things. And those a whole lot of other things are found in a whole lot of other places in the Bible. And one of the ways that this is a common practice for us is that almost all of your Bibles at the bottom or in the middle of the margin have what's called a cross-reference system. And the whole reason that you have cross-reference verses is because many times we may come to a verse that seems a little confusing or a little unclear as to what it's really talking about. And although cross-reference verses aren't inspired as to which verse correlates to what... They're a very helpful tool for us to do what? To interpret what is unclear by what is clear. The problem with dispensational theology is that it does the exact opposite. It takes this 1,000-year reign, what is, for all intents and purposes here, unclear as to the true nature of it in in a symbolic apocalyptic book, and reads that into what is clear. So it's really an, a, the opposite effect. And so our, our confession of faith, I think, words it rightly um, in the very first chapter covering this idea of, you know, it walks through the different elements of the Bible. And then in the seventh 
paragraph, in the ninth paragraph, it, it speaks to this, says this in the seventh paragraph. All things in Scripture are not alike plain in themselves, nor alike clear unto all. Yet those things which are necessary to be known, believed, and observed for salvation are so clearly propounded and opened in some place of Scripture or other, that not only the learned, but the unlearned, in the due use of the ordinary means, may attain unto a sufficient understanding of them. So, let's just say, for example, that these writers of the Westminster Confession of Faith are saying... Don't get so hung up on the millennium. What we do need to know is crystal clear in Scripture. And there are some things that aren't quite as clear. So here's what we do with that. Uh, The ninth paragraph of the first chapter. The infallible rule of interpretation of Scripture is the Scripture itself. We interpret Scripture by Scripture. And therefore, when there's a question about the true and full sense of any Scripture which is not manifold, but one, it must be searched and known by other places that speak more clearly. That's a very helpful way to approach the Bible because in my estimation, what dispensational theology does is the opposite. It takes this idea of a millennium and almost virtually anywhere you go to in the Bible that speaks of any kind of reign or kingdom they read this, well, that all happens in the millennium. So it's taking the millennial concept and imposing it upon everything in the New Testament and Old Testament that speaks to any kind of rule and reign. So, for example, instead of viewing the different ways resurrection is understood to describe the soul and the body, which we already talked about that earlier, resurrection is understood solely in terms of Revelation 20. In dispensational theology. Since it talks about a first resurrection, there must be at least two, because there's a first, that means there must be a second, and maybe a third. According to J. Dwight Pentecost, there's five, which I mentioned already. So again, it's taking a reverse approach to understanding Scripture. The unclear is used and read into the clear instead of vice versa. One of the places that we do come to in Revelation 20 is the fact that it talks about Satan being bound for a thousand years. Now, what do we do with that? How do we understand what exactly that means? Well, do we say, well, that couldn't, tr- that, there's no way that could happen now. Why is that? Well, because the news channels. Well, because global events. In other words, in dispensational theology, world events are used to interpret the meaning of the Bible instead of vice versa. But it's interesting that two places in the scriptures, when you come to Revelation 20 and you say, what does that mean that Satan is bound? What does it mean that he's put in prison? Well, here's what two passages of scripture have to say about that idea. That first one is in the second Peter chapter two, verse four. Here's what it says about demons or fallen angels. Verse 4 of Second Peter chapter 4. For if God did not spare angels when they sinned, but cast them into hell and committed them to chains of gloomy darkness to be kept until the judgment. When is that happening? Now. That's what he says. Ever since they fell, they've been kept in chains until the time of judgment. Jude says the same thing. There's actually a lot of parallel between Jude and... And Second Peter, Jude says this, 
in verse, starting in verse 5, Jude says this, Now I want to remind you, although you once fully knew it, that Jesus who saved a people out of the land of Egypt afterwards destroyed those who did not believe. And the angels who did not stay within their own position of authority but left their proper dwelling, he has kept in eternal chains under gloomy darkness until the judgment of the great day. When did that happen? It's happening now. It's not happening in this future millennium. It's happening now. So that's just a very small example of when we come to Revelation 20, it's unclear. It might be confusing. There's this mention about chains and being put into prison. How do we understand that? Well, what do we do? We go to a book that's more clear, a book that speaks to it and says, however difficult it might be to understand that concept, it's explicit in Jude and Second Peter that that chain, that torment, that being kept until the day of judgment is happening now, not deferred until the millennium. Another place we can look at is Matthew 25. And again, I I warned you, I'm going to be flying all over the place. Matthew 25, when Jesus speaks about his return. And what does he say he's going to do when he returns? Matthew 25, 31. Matthew 25, 31 says... I'll give you just a minute. I hear a couple of you still trying to get there. Matthew 25, 31. It says, When the Son of Man comes in His glory and all the angels with Him, then He will sit on His glorious throne. Before Him will be gathered all the nations, and He will separate people one from another as a shepherd separates the sheep from the goats. And what will He do? He will enter into judgment. Jesus' return, according to Jesus, is returning for executing judgment, not returning to establish 1,000 years of rule and reign before a judgment. One more place to look at is 1 Corinthians 15. I have alluded to this in previous classes in here, but 1 Corinthians 15, yet again, Explains to us the order of events. 1 Corinthians 15, verse 23 says this. He's speaking of the resurrection, how it's going to take place, what to look for. In verse 23 of 1 Corinthians 15, Paul says this. Actually, I'll, just for the sake of um, a little bit of clarity, I'll start in verse 22. For as in Adam all die, so also in Christ shall all be made alive. How will all be made alive? Each in his own order. Christ the firstfruits. Then at his coming those who belong to Christ. Then comes the end. When he delivers the kingdom to God the Father after destroying every rule and every authority and power. For he must reign until he has put all his enemies under his feet. The last enemy to be destroyed is death. So a few things we can do here. First of all, we know, according to the book of Acts, that the apostles saw Jesus fulfilling Psalm 110 upon his ascension into heaven. He sat down at the right hand of the Father, where the Father says, Sit at my right hand until your enemies become a footstool for your feet. 
And according to Paul, we have been raised to life now to rule and reign with Christ now. And according to Paul here, when Jesus returns, the end will come. So that's just yet another example of when we come to a text like Revelation 20, we interpret what's unclear by what is clear elsewhere. Since elsewhere, Jesus is returning for final judgment, not for a millennium. We have to do something with the millennium. We have to understand, okay, if when Jesus returns, the end is here, that must mean the millennium has to take place before that. There has to be a meaning to the millennium outside of just a straightforward, literal understanding of it. The problem with dispensationalism is that it does the opposite. It asserts from the start the millennium is a literal 1,000-year period on earth. Therefore, everything else in the New Testament has to come underneath that truth, what should be the opposite. How do we understand symbolism, apocalyptic literature? We take what it speaks to, not what it, well, not what it dwells above, but the true realities, what speaks to it, are used to determine what is being said by John in Revelation. The third problem, and this I hope will really bring it home uh, to any of you who are still not sure about this whole idea of the millennium being now. If you want a more like thorough understanding of that, I would definitely encourage you to check out um, last week's class because we uh, spent a lot of time in that. But the third instance of this is the inconsistency of a literal interpretation. I want to show you how... This is the case. Um, You can turn, and we're just going to look at five key places in Revelation to show how we don't have to, nor should we, understand everything in Revelation 20 literally. The first place you can go is the very beginning of Revelation, chapter 1, verse 9. Revelation chapter 1, verse 9. There's a couple key things happening here. First of all, Verse 9, John says this. I, John, your brother and partner in the tribulation, in the kingdom, and the patient endurance that are in Jesus. This is a strong, I think, proof of the the amillennial understanding. Remember, we, we talked about that a few weeks back. That the time between Jesus' first to second coming is the millennium. We rule and reign with Christ now. Satan has been bound so that we can bring forth the gospel to the nations. It's the only possible way that we could do that effectively because Jesus has all authority on heaven and earth. And in the amillennial understanding, the millennium is, within the millennium is present both blessing and tribulation. It's not strictly a linear progression of Better life, better world, more peace. But it's ruling and reigning with Christ, victory being accomplished. But at the same time, we're still exposed to a fallen world where sin is still a reality, where tribulation is still occurring. And notice that John associates himself with all of these aspects at once. He doesn't see them as this strict dispensational progression. First you have the tribulation, then you have the kingdom 
and millennial reign, but he says, I'm your partner in all of them. I'm your partner in the tribulation and the kingdom and the patient endurance that are in Jesus. So at the very beginning of the book, he paints the picture that these things are taking place mixed and mingled together, not separated, distinct time periods, but a reality that is full of blessing because we're found in Christ but also tribulation because Jesus says, in this world you will have tribulation. Why? Because you belong to me. In this world, tribulation will be a reality. Yet again, in the, in the first chapter of Revelation, look at verse 18. Here's what Jesus says. He is the living one. He says, I died and behold, I am alive forevermore. And I have the keys of death in Hades. What does it say about the angel in Revelation 20? The angel that had the keys to this pit throws Satan into this pit. Jesus makes that claim very early on here in Revelation that he's the one that has the keys. Yet again, <clears throat> we have symbolism happening previously in, in Revelation. John sees these seven golden lampstands. And here's what it says. Here's what Jesus says to him in verse 20. As for the mystery of the seven stars that you saw on my right hand and the seven golden lampstands, the seven stars are the angels of the seven churches and the seven lampstands are the seven churches. So very early on, we have an encouragement to understand that there is symbolism present within the book of Revelation. Jesus says that the lampstands and the stars are symbols which speak to the angels of the seven churches and the seven churches themselves. In other words, you don't have to understand the stars and the lampstands literally. They speak to something by way of symbol or sign. And another place we can look at is in chapter 5. Revelation chapter 5, verse 5 and 6, says this. And one of the elders said to me, Weep no more. Behold, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has conquered so that he can open the scroll and its seven seals. And between the throne and the four living creatures and among the elders, I saw a lamb standing as though it had been slain with seven horns and with seven eyes, which are the seven spirits of God sent out into all the earth. We have a huge problem here. Is Jesus a lion? Is he the root of David? Is he a lamb? Does God have seven different spirits? What's happening here? Well, if we understand it literally, Jesus can't be both a literal lion and a literal lamb and a literal root. But they speak instead by way of symbol to a reality. So does the seven horns, seven eyes, and the seven spirits of God. Seven is a number of perfection, of completion. We see it all the way back in the creative order in Genesis chapter 1. Scripture nowhere states that God has seven distinct literal spirits about himself. God is not a composite of seven spirits, but seven speaks to this perfection and completion. 
So yet again, symbolic. It would be irresponsible for us to assert that this is all literal realities of God and impose that on the whole rest of the Bible. One more place, Revelation 11, verses 7 and 8. Revelation 11, 7 and 8. We have the two witnesses here. There's a lot happening. There's a lot of numbers thrown out here. Verses 7 and 8, it says this. And when they, that is the two witnesses, and when they have finished their testimony, the beast that rises from the bottomless pit will make war on them and conquer them and kill them. And their dead bodies will lie in the street of the great city that is symbolically or spiritually called Sodom and Egypt, where their Lord was crucified. Was Jesus crucified in Sodom or Egypt or Jerusalem? The answer, according to this, is yes. (laughs) Now, why is that? Because what is being described here is symbolism. A spiritual reality here. We know that Jesus wasn't literally crucified in Sodom. Sodom was destroyed. He wasn't literally crucified in Egypt. He was crucified in Jerusalem, outside of the gates. It is so interesting to me that this passage, in two verses, speaks of a reality and uses three different geographical locations. The whole point of that, first of all, is that it's impossible for us to interpret this literally because it would be a huge contradiction. We can't say that Jesus died in Sodom and Egypt and Jerusalem. It didn't happen. But instead, it's this symbolic or spiritual reality signified by these places. And one final place, you don't have to turn there, but Revelation 12, I mentioned this last week. Revelation 12 depicts that... This great dragon stands in front of this woman who's about to give birth to this child who's to rule all the nations so that he can devour the child. Now, of course, we know that this child is Jesus Christ. He is the one who's to rule all nations. Well, if Revelation is strictly a chronological book, we have Jesus having just executed judgment in Revelation chapters 1 through 11... And then suddenly in chapter 12, he's born. Well, again, there's no way that we could see Revelation as this chronological sweep from beginning to end, distinctly progressive. But instead, Revelation is a symbolic book that uses terminology, places, figures of speech that have been spoken of elsewhere in the Old Testament and brings them to a catastrophic conclusion or fulfillment in what reality? The reality that Jesus Christ rules and reigns with all authority. That's, that's the whole point of Revelation. And so when we come to Revelation 20, we shouldn't suddenly say, we've got to interpret all of it literally. Number one, because there's nothing that says you have to. Number two, it's impossible to do that consistently with the whole rest of Revelation, as we've just seen. So here, you have an inconsistency of literal interpretation Because there's no possible way that you can take everything said in Revelation literally without falling into very dangerous contradiction. That's not to say that the whole book of Revelation, it's all symbolic. There's nothing literal about it. That's not what we're saying. It's not um, this book. It's not an allegory. 
right? It's not like Pilgrim's Progress where everything is allegory. Even Pilgrim's Progress speaks to a true literal reality, but so does the book of Revelation. It speaks to a true reality of who we are in Jesus Christ and the authority that he possesses to bring about um, heaven for his people and judgment over the earth and all who oppose him. So the last thing, which we have just a few minutes, the last thing that I want to show you, and you can turn to Revelation 22. I think bringing those last three points together, I think the true problem with dispensationalism is that it just misunderstands the function of the millennium itself. In Revelation 22, we have... This reality of everything that happened in, during the fall, the Garden of Eden, where the fruit was eaten, sin entered into the world, Adam and Eve were banished from the garden, and the privilege of eating from the tree of life was taken away from them. When you get to Revelation 22, this tree of life is offered yet again, and the ability to eat from it is given to those who are in Christ One of the problems with dispensationalism, there's a book, uh, it's actually from the school that I go to, it's the Moody uh, Theology Handbook, which that's a dispensational school. And one of the things that the writer Paul N. says is this, the final ultimate form of God's theocratic kingdom is the millennial kingdom governed by Jesus Christ. It is ultimately that kingdom to which the Old Testament looks forward to. And he says this, The day when God is worshipped in his holiness by a regenerated people in a restored world will be the millennial kingdom. In my estimation, this overemphasizes what the millennium is. It's interesting that everything that dispensational theology looks forward to or hopes towards in the millennium is actually what the Bible says will come to pass. But the problem is that it comes to pass in the new heavens and new earth, not in the millennium. The millennium, as I mentioned last week, according to dispensational theology, when Jesus returns and the millennium is instituted, the curse of sin is removed, according to dispensational theology. But yet, Death still happens. Now, it doesn't take a whole lot of pondering the Bible to realize that the reality of death is because the reality of sin. And the only way the curse of sin can be removed is if death is finally dealt with once and for all. And the scriptures are, are so clear that that happens upon the new heavens and new earth at Jesus' second coming, not during this 1,000 millennial reign. So in my estimation, the Old Testament anticipation that we in covenant theology see as being fulfilled in the new heavens and new earth is what dispensationalism sees as being fulfilled in the millennium. Now if all these things happen in the millennium, what's the point of the new heavens and new earth? Because you've already you've already got everything. The author of the Hebrews says we look for a city that is to come, not one that's found here, one that is given to us forever and ever. And that's exactly what Revelation 21 says. There's this new Jerusalem coming down. There's this dwelling place where we will be with Christ, where 
We, according to the New Testament, are the temple of God because he dwells within us by the Holy Spirit. And we will dwell with him forever and ever. And we will partake of this tree of life and rejoice with him. And that's exactly what he said. The day when God is worshipped in his holiness by regenerated people in a restored world. What is that? That's the new heavens and new earth. That's not the millennium. It can't be the millennium even by their own estimation because according to them, even though the curse of sin is removed, everybody's been dealt with. There's only believers there. Well, in that 1,000-year time span, people are still marrying, having children. Some of those children aren't Christians. So then you have believers and non-believers in the millennium. You have people with glorified bodies and not glorified bodies. It just seems that every aspect of what we look forward to again and again described as the new heavens and new earth, the eternal state, is being kind of taken and put in this millennium. Instead, the millennium, just as Revelation is symbolic, the millennium should be understood to the reality we know is true. We know that we reign and rule with Christ now. We know that we've been raised to life now. This isn't liberal theology where we say everything's spiritualized, there's no bodily resurrection. That's far from it. But the fact is that this first resurrection is the fact that we rule and reign with Christ now. Satan is bound now because the gospel is being spread and gone forth into the nations now. Why are you a believer? Because Satan has been bound. Because Jesus has all authority. Because the gospel has gone forth into your heart. It's a very overcomplication, I think, to understand all of these things as being... Part in a tribulation, part in a rapture, part in a millennium, and then whatever's left over in the new heavens, new earth. When John speaks of this new Jerusalem and the tree of life, he ends the book of Revelation by saying this. He who testifies to these things says, surely I am coming soon. Amen. Come Lord Jesus. Why does John say that? Because he's looking forward to to the new Jerusalem because he's looking forward to the tree of life and dwelling with Christ forever. He doesn't say come Lord Jesus because he wants the millennium to get here. He says come Lord Jesus because I want the new heavens and new earth. I want the bodily resurrection. I want sin and death to be dealt with once and for all in this final judgment. And that's the historic position of the church. And in my estimation, dispensationalism just veers off in an unnecessarily complicated way of inconsistent literalism and appropriating things from the new heavens and new earth and applying them to this millennium. So that's our survey of how dispensationalism falls short. And we have a couple minutes left. Next week is going to be our conclusion And what I want to do is I'm sure that many of you have probably had a lot of questions here and there. Uh, Maybe you've asked them. Maybe they haven't necessarily been answered uh, to your liking from week one. So next week I'd like to kind of have an open floor a little bit. I'm going to do do some teaching, but I would like to kind of field some questions that you have. It can be anything from the first week to today. And uh, we'll conclude this series. Uh, It's definitely been a huge blessing to be able to talk with all this about um, what the Bible says and hopefully um, help all of us come to a biblical understanding. But does anybody have any just uh, brief questions before we close? Yes. Um, when is the devil supposed to have walked up? Like right after he fell? 
No, so at, I would say that the scriptures, let's use, a, let's use an example of the book of Colossians. It says that Jesus' victory over the cross was him being victorious over all rule and principalities, um, both earthly and heavenly. So in other words, the way that covenant theology sees the devil being bound is in Jesus' victory over the cross, which also includes his resurrection and ascension. Okay, that's, so, so that's... that's why there were demons when Jesus was here? Yeah, yeah, and, and also that the only way that he could say upon his resurrection and giving the Great Commission, all authority in heaven and earth belongs to me, he's speaking again to his victory over demonic rule and principalities and things like that. That's not to say that the devil owned the world until Jesus was crucified, because obviously the Lord is, is sovereign over, over all. Anybody have any other questions? Anybody have any complaints? You can rebuke me on the floor now. All right, well, let me pray, and uh, we'll go into worship together. Well, friends, thanks for listening. I pray and trust that you found this episode to be helpful and maybe covered some questions and some challenging things that you may not have thought about before in just how difficult it is sometimes to tackle a biblical doctrine that has at least what seems to be biblical support from two opposing views. I certainly want to encourage you to do your own study into further this particular session of the Better Bible Reading Podcast beyond just listening. Now, one of the ways that you can do that is by going over to the website where you can find the show notes for this episode and all other episodes of the podcast. The show notes are important, especially on Teaching Thursdays, because there you can access an outline of the particular teaching session. You can also see the biblical texts that are mentioned, and obviously if there's any kind of links that I mention in the recording, you can find those there as well. So it's really a good way for you to become active in the way that you listen to this podcast. So head on over to betterbiblereading.com forward slash episode 45 to get those show notes. And if you find this helpful, please mention this show to your friends and tell them that it can be found on iTunes, Google Play, and anywhere else that they listen to podcasts. Enjoy the rest of your day and thank you so much for listening.